This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button question stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Hello, everyone. It's time once again for Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we give you the evidence to know for certain that Christianity is true. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Kirk Hastings. We are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey, and heard exclusively on WIBG Ocean City, New Jersey. Check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can look at our bios and listen to podcasts of previous shows. Well, Kirk, I think we have another great show discussing critical thinking skills today. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) We're going to finish talking about logical thinking skills, and logical fallacies. Before we do that, there's a couple of news items, and I have a great quote here. I think you'll like this one, Kirk. This is from an atheist by the name of Bradley Monton. He's a professor from the University of Colorado. Okay. He's talking about methodological naturalism. So what he says is, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, the philosophical position that restricts all explanations in science to naturalistic explanations, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. More and more evidence could come in suggesting that a supernatural being exists, but scientific theories wouldn't be allowed to acknowledge that possibility. What do you think of that quote? Wow, he's very honest. Yeah, he is, for an atheist, right? Yes, that's a very honest admission there. Yep, and it's from his, well, I'm actually, I'm not sure if this is from his book, but he's written a book called Seeking God in Science, and Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He sounds like he and, might be straddling the fence a little there. Uh, I don't know. I think he just recognizes that there is a lot of evidence that intelligent design is really true. So, And he thinks that the evolutionists are simply not addressing the actual evidence. Well, we would agree with him on that point. <laughs> Absolutely. How'd your little excursion go today? Very interesting. I went to the Ocean City Library this afternoon. They were holding a uh, lecture at 3 o'clock called Human Evolution in a Nutshell. And uh, it was given by a young lady who was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. And she had some slides and pictures and was... Uh, 
basically giving an overview of modern human evolution. By modern, I mean she uh, made it clear in the beginning that she was uh, more knowledgeable on modern human beings and their ancestry rather than the ancient fossils, although she did uh, include quite a bit of information about the... uh, the other fossil remains that they've had that, you know, go back to supposedly millions and millions of years. Uh, Very interesting little lecture, but there was one thing that struck me throughout the entire time that I was there. I didn't get to hear quite all of the lecture because I had to get over here to the studio. I didn't hear the ending. But uh, I was amazed during the 45 minutes or so that I was there of how many times she used phrases like, I guess, I assume, I think, maybe, uh, we have no idea about this, we don't know, we guess, this belief could change next week. Uh, Almost every sentence was littered with those kinds of expressions. Right. And I tried to put myself in the position of someone who was hearing this stuff for the first time and how you know, how a person not versed in this stuff would think. And I kept thinking, she doesn't really seem to know very much about this at all. (laughs) I mean, I'm not casting aspersions on her uh, ability as a student, but she made it quite clear, and I guess she was really being pretty honest about it, that uh, neither her nor her professors really could nail down much of what she was saying as established scientific fact. It seemed like most of it was uh, opinions and guesses and personal interpretations of the very few fossil bones that she admitted that we have. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So what was the, just the, was it just a kind of an overview of different lines of human species yeah she was she was going through the the basics of what they believe uh how the human race uh started in the continent of africa they're not sure when exactly she she also made it clear that most of what she was saying that uh there's no general consensus about most of this stuff that different scientists have different opinions about it so it's all very uh vague (laughs) Yep. But basically, yep. she was uh, trying to give an overview of how the human race basically started somehow, we don't know, in the continent of Africa and then spread out into Europe and Asia. And she was showing slides of the different uh, bones and skulls that we have and going through the different uh, early species of humans, such as Neanderthals and, you know, whatever and whatever. Mm-hmm. And just basically... Um, trying to explain how we got from some, uh, and she called it a missing link. She said a missing link that was, that was the ancient ancestor of both apes and humans, how we got from there to the modern human being. Mm. Interesting. So nothing, nothing new there, no new discoveries, just the same old story over again. I can't really say I didn't, at the, well, while I was there, I didn't hear her say anything that I haven't heard before. Right. Um, okay. Some of it was changed a little bit, but she admitted that this stuff changes basically on a, on a weekly basis. 
Right, right. So she said, she even admitted at one point, she said, you know, most of what I'm telling you today, next week it could change. Right. And I'm thinking, wow, what a solid philosophy to base your uh, beliefs about the human race on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Kirk, I've got a news item that came from Breakpoint, Chuck Colson's website. And this is very interesting. It goes to the Christian worldview that we talk about and how Christianity helps to provide a firm basis for morals and people believing that God wants them to control themselves and to be ethical, and it builds a system of trust whereby people can conduct business and can sign contracts and build businesses together because they know they won't be lied to, they won't be cheated, because they know the other person is holding themselves to a high standard and that God will judge them for their actions. Mm -hmm. So this talks about why the collapse, the economic collapse in 2008, and Colson has been saying that it was the result of first an ethical collapse in the rejection of Christian uh, beliefs in this country. So he points out that there was a recent report by the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that called the events of 2008 and their aftermath avoidable. The commission wrote that the crisis was the result of human action and inaction and not unforeseeable events or uncontrollable forces. He says, nor was there just one set of villains. The responsible parties were to be found both in Washington and on Wall Street. As the Washington Post put it, the report spares virtually no one in assigning culpability for the worst financial calamity in generations. Hmm. The federal government was ill-prepared for the crisis, and its inconsistent response added to the uncertainty and panic in the financial markets. The commission is especially hard on the Federal Reserve. It cites the Fed's pivotal failure to stem the flow of toxic mortgages, which it could have done by setting prudent mortgage lending standards. Hmm. Note the word prudent, Colson says. This is a moral and ethical question. Mm -hmm. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were rightly singled out. The report calls them the kings of leverage for borrowing $75 for every dollar they had in reserves. <laughs> Their erstwhile regulator, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, was criticized for allowing them to dive headfirst into the subprime mortgage market, an unethical lapse of oversight. Then he continues, speaking of which, there's plenty of blame directed at Wall Street. Merrill Lynch was criticized for not telling investors what they needed to know about the state of the firm's finances, a flat-out ethical failure. Goldman Sachs was hit for lending money to subprime lenders. It sold securities made up of those risky loans, and it created financial products that allowed others to bet against the very securities it sold. Talk about a conflict of interest. The blame for the financial crisis extends to Main Street as well. For every subprime lender, there was a subprime borrower. Too many Americans abandoned the principles of the Protestant work ethic, among which include paying our bills and not plunging into debt. Instead, they borrowed excessively to finance houses they knew they couldn't afford. When the bubble burst, they wound up owing more than their homes than they, than they were worth. 
In the end, the financial crisis was the product of too many people failing to do the right thing. Instead of exercising prudence and moral restraint, they chose the path of self-interest, greed, and folly. Hmm. This is what we get when we abandon the biblical worldview and absent a renewed commitment to doing the right thing, we can expect more of the same. Wow. Yeah, that from Chuck Colson Breakpoint. I actually saw a little uh, news item on the on the TV news last night that was kind of addressing this, that, you know, we're in such bad shape financially and how the result of it uh, or the cause of it was a lot of bad decisions along the way. And, you know, and right. I turned Unethical. to my Yeah, and I turned to my wife and I said, you know, basically what the problem here is, too many people have been spending money they don't have for too long. And because of that irresponsible action, we are where we are now. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not too hard to imagine that things could fall back to the way they were before Christianity came on the scene when human beings all over the world lived at a subsistence level. Right. So, uh, well, I'm old, I'm old enough to remember when I was a kid that uh, credit cards were a very rare thing in the 50s and early 60s. Yep. And you basically, you had to pay your way back then. You couldn't buy things if you didn't have the money. Right. But since the uh, the the credit society has come in, uh, we've gotten too used to the idea of spending money that we don't have because we have that little plastic card. Right. And the problem is not the credit card. The problem is spending money you don't have. If you have the money, the credit cards can be very handy and useful. Right. So, but it's really, it comes down to the ethics of the situation. You can't build free markets with people who are willing to cheat and steal. Right. Yep. All right, here's another news item. This is from National Geographic News. The headlines are, unless you've been living in a cave, you probably haven't run across the new species of poisonous, nearly blind pseudoscorpion. (laughs) So this is news about a new species being discovered. And I thought it was worth mentioning because we've been talking about speciation and how it comes about from the loss of genetic information. And here's a perfect example. This is a half-inch long species. It was discovered recently in high-altitude caverns near Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And it says scorpions, or rather, pseudoscorpions are essentially scorpions that lack a stinging tail, although it does have a long venom-tipped pincers. And the picture of it was very interesting. It looks like a half a scorpion. There's just no, it doesn't have a tail. Really? So it is lost the genetic information to make the tail and also the scorpions are nearly blind so they've lost information uh, for their eyes too right i guess they live deep in caves or something yes exactly exactly and one of the interesting things that's not mentioned in this article is that there are other versions of this species found in caves in western australia So these two places on Earth in Colorado and Western Australia, if they had come up from a lower species and were, say, becoming, turning into a scorpion, and then maybe a full scorpion came from this species, why would it be that they're in such divergent parts of the world? 
it's much more likely that scorpions, full scorpions, found themselves living in caves and lost the genetic Im information to make a tail, but because they were in a cave situation, they didn't need that tail to survive. Right. So that's a good example of devolution instead of evolution. Well, that's interesting. I never thought Here's about that before, that, in, that according to evolution, if animals can progress forward and evolve forward, then doesn't that mean they could just as easily evolve backwards too? Yeah, it absolutely does. In fact, uh, based on the second law of ther thermodynamics, it's much more likely that they would evolve downwards. But yet that's not really how evolution is supposed to work. Because correct. if that were if, if that were true, then we wouldn't be here. <laughs> that's human beings. That's correct. Here's another one. This is basically the same thing. It's from BBC News Science Division, and it's titled "Studying How Snakes Got Legless." <laughs> well, I didn't know. I thought it was only the Bible that said snakes had at one time had legs and would not have legs in the future. <laughs> Another case of devolution, huh? That's right. This is a fossil found in Lebanon. It says the specimen is one of only three examples of an ancient snake with preserved leg bones. It says one rear leg is clearly visible, but researchers had to use a novel x-ray technique to examine another leg hidden inside the fossil rock. Huh. Wow. Writing in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, the team says the snake records an early stage in limb loss. <laughs> and it says the study reveals the degree of regression of the legs. So these were hind legs. There were no forelegs in this fossil. And uh, it says the fossil was just under a meter long, or the snake rather. It would have slithered along the ground, dragging its legs behind it. And it's unlikely that the animal would have used its legs for moving. So it was in the process of losing its legs, the genetic information to make legs. Huh. So another that? example of devolution, what actually happens, that and reminds, an example that was pointed out in Scripture. That reminds me of an old uh, BC comic strip by Johnny Hart, where he's standing there and this snake walks by on two legs. And B.C. is looking at it, and he says, boy, this world is younger than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I like that. <laughs> All right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And, Kirk, we have several letters that I want to get through. These are short, so I thought we'd do several of them. Letters, we get letters. <laughs> That's right, or emails, I guess we should correctly say. This one is from Felipe, and it says, The comment you made during the show about micro and macro evolution is not correct. Contrary to what you said, species are not created by suddenly changing from one species to another, but by accumulations over long periods. Macro evolution of small mutations, microevolution. I invite you to look at Wikipedia under the section misuse. You can see more about the mistakes you made. Regards, Philippe. Mm-hmm. Well, did that sound like a disagreement? I would say so. 
Okay. I don't it agree with like it. a disagreement, but <laughs> actually, if you look at the words, those are the words we used. That macroevolution is supposed to come about from microevolution. So I wrote back a couple paragraphs here and said, Dear Felipe, thank you for your email. However, I think you're mistaken in your statements. You say, quote, contrary to what we say, species are not created suddenly changing from one species to another, close quote. That is not what we said. We did not say that species are created by suddenly changing. We understand the belief that it takes long periods of time for new kinds of animals to arise. However, we think the evidence shows that this belief is false. No amount of time is long enough for one kind of animal to change into a different kind of animal because microevolution does not provide any new gen genetic information but works by rearranging current information or destroying that information. Right. We're, we're In, saying that there's no direct connection between microevolution and macroevolution where he's saying that he thinks there is. But what is the connection? Can he tell us what the connection is? Right. And he was faulting us for, for trying to say that it happens quickly and we don't think it happens quickly. So we don't think it happens at all. So well, we could, I, also, we could also bring up the point that uh, recent scientists like Stephen Jay Gould uh, realized that the fossil evidence didn't support the idea of a lot of small changes over a long amount of time. And he came up with the idea of punctuated equilibria, which exactly. means one species could literally change overnight into another in order to ex explain the lack of transitional fossils in the fossil record. Right. So some evolutionists actually do believe that they, the species can change overnight. That is true. That is true. Which shows so, how much argument there is even among evolutionists as to how evolution supposedly works. Right, right. Then I looked at the Wikipedia article that he mentioned, and so I write, um, in reviewing the Wikipedia article you mentioned, it defines macroevolution as speciation. Speciation can, in fact, be caused by very tiny genetic changes or microevolution. For example, the well-studied genetic changes that occur between different finch species. We have been clear to point out that by using the term macroevolution, we are referring to one kind of animal changing into another kind of animal, right. no matter how long it takes. Right. It could take 30 seconds one generation or it could take a billion years it doesn't matter we're saying that never happens right through the addition of new genetic information such as the information to manufacture a new type of molecular machine this type of change has never been demonstrated believing that macroevolution causes increased genetic information is a post hoc fallacy mhm mm so and i after thinking about it a little bit, after looking at the letter, I think it's actually probably not a post hoc fallacy. And we'll get into that today when we get into fallacies. I think it's just a simple non sequitur. Just because microevolution occurs, it does not follow that macroevolution occurs. Right. So it's a non sequitur. Right. Science has yet to give us evidence of a mechanism that crosses the boundary between one and the other. Right. Okay, here's another one. 
This one is from DJA. He says, Dear Mr. Kendricks, I recently heard your discussion with the Irreligious Sophistry podcast and have since become an iTunes subscriber. I thoroughly enjoyed the discussion and thought I'd recommend another podcast you might want to entertain a similar engagement with. And then he mentions the name of that other podcast. And the reason I recommend it is because one of the hosts is actually a professor of comparative religion and a formidable New Testament scholar. And then he gives me a couple of things to click on for some things to listen to. Sincerely, DJA. So I said, Dear Dan, thanks for the encouraging email. I will listen to the podcast you suggested. Blessings. So that was a nice nice letter from a fan. All right, do we have time for one more? How about this one? This one's from Eric. He says... A couple of weeks ago, you did an analysis of the debate you did with Chuck and Layton of irreligious sophistry. It seems wrong that you you dissecting the debate without them being there to further defend themselves. I could excuse this as a lapse of judgment, but then you stated in your latest show that you intend to do more analysis of the debate. If you have further issues with what they said, you should invite them for another debate not just pick at the previous debate. Let them expand on what they said as opposed to assuming what they meant. Best wishes, Eric. So here's what I say. Sorry for the delay in getting back to you. I've been swamped lately. I'm not sure why you think it is wrong. What moral standard was broken? They are free to discuss the debate, dialogue, discussion, really, and so are we. We didn't attack them, and we discussed ideas that received only the briefest mention because they were off the topic we had agreed to discuss. I think it would be morally wrong to give listeners the idea that such important ideas can be understood in such short sound bites. I actually did invite them more than a month ago to come back on for another discussion to go over the items that came up and for them to give their defense and to resume the Kalam argument, but they did not respond to the offer. However, since writing that response, we did arrange for another debate, so we will be doing another debate. Right. Okay. Well, you know what? Should I do this last letter, or should we jump into the topic? Uh, go ahead. Okay. Live go ahead wild. and read the letter. Go ahead. All right, this is a funny one. Uh, this guy tried to use sarcasm with us. I guess he didn't like the analogy we did on second law of thermodynamics and how things decay, things fall apart, entropy increases. And he didn't like our beef and electricity, where we said that that for the evolutionist, just to claim that because there's an open system isn't enough to explain how systems can become more complex. So we gave an example of, say, taking a piece of meat and just plugging an electric cord into it. There's plenty of power and energy there, but nothing's going to happen. It's not going to stop it from decay. Right. Because it needs more than just to be in an open system. So saying it's in an open system is may be a necessary cause, but it's not a sufficient cause. It might be necessary, 
for there to be an open system, but it's not sufficient. It doesn't mean that things are going to get more organized just because there's an open system. Right. That reminds me of the example of uh, Clever that I heard a, a little while ago that a corpse has all the ingredients needed for a living person, but it's not alive. So That's right. Having all the elements doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have life. It, they're necessary for it, but they're not sufficient. Correct. That's kind That's of correct. what you're saying in a different way. That's right. So this person, by the name of Dogwood, emails us and pretends to be a Christian. So listen to <laughs> the sarcasm here. Okay. Brother, brothers in Christ, a biologist friend of mine gave me this argument when I explained to her how the sun prevents evolution. And remember that we use the example that just because the sun is pounding on the earth doesn't mean that it helps in any way to create complexity. It doesn't undo the second law of thermodynamics. Right. She said, and I am paraphrasing here, if you have a piece of meat and leave it in the sun, it brings about an increase of incredible complexity and disorder. After all, viral, bacterial, fungal, and larval life take hold and grow within it. A piece of meat decays. The upshot is millions of complex organisms while bacteria are sharing plasmids and evolving. So entropy is decreased by the sun. How should I respond to her? I do not have a background in biology, but am gaining an understanding of biblical science thanks to you. I know Jesus is with you as your radio ministry goes, those great radio days. <laughs> so I took the lead of this person and answered with sarcasm. <laughs> so I, I said, dear brother, tell her this. That is because it is an open system. Open systems are like magic. They make things grow and increase in specified complexity. <laughs> Why, you can even get biologists out of bacteria if you only wait long enough. But if you, but if you don't want to wait, just go to the beach. Why, one time I saw how sunlight had spelled out the words John loves Mary in the sand. <laughs> Truly magical. No, even better than magic, because with magic you still have a magician. <laughs> also tell her to use the electrical cord next time. You get more energy that way and preserves the meat almost as good as a freezer. <laughs> Keep believing, Keith. I'm surprised <laughs> at you. <laughs> so, well, I thought, why not fight a little sarcasm with some sarcasm? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I, I think, when did I respond back to this guy? Let's see. Yeah, it's been a while. He hasn't responded back. Well, right. folks, you're seeing a new side of Keith on this program. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the sarcastic side. That's right. Well, s sarcasm is a, a characteristic of God, so I enjoy sarcasm. Uh-huh. All right, let's see. Let's jump in. Last time, for those maybe who didn't follow the previous shows, we've been talking about critical thinking, 
how to do it, why it's important. And this stems from a study that showed that college students are not being trained well to think critically, that a third of students who graduate from four years of college still think at the same level of critical thinking and have not improved in their critical thinking skills. Boy, so I, could, I could really see that in the lecture I went to today. Oh, could you? Yeah. The, the girl that was giving the lecture on evolution didn't seem to notice how vague everything she was saying was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. I kept thinking, she, if she applied any critical thinking to this stuff, she would have thrown three quarters of this stuff out the window. Mm. Yeah, that's and, and one of the things we're going to look at is what makes a good argument. So if you're making a presentation and you want to know how to present a good, solid, logical argument, you can follow those steps. So last time we looked at the laws of logic or the laws of thought, really, the basic laws of thought that give us the basis to communicate with each other, to think clearly, and to build up logical rules. So we looked at the law of identity, A equals A. We looked at the law of non-contradiction, A does not equal non-A, and we looked at the law of the excluded middle, A or non-A. Now, there's that's the gen, that's the first three, and some books on logic will leave that right there, but some books on logic will add a fourth one called the law of inference. So let's look at that. What is the law of inference? Well, the law of inference basically says that you are able to build up from these basic concepts into further concepts by inferring information. So if we were to give that algebraically, we might say, for example, if A equals B and B equals C, then we can infer, we know that A equals C. Okay. Okay. So just simple logical inference. Because of the two things that we know, we can now discover a third thing that we didn't know before by closely examining the first two ideas or concepts. Right. And if you've ever heard people talk about a priori, that I can know something a priori, that's what they're talking about. Okay. Okay. Prior to any kind of examining any evidence, this is just just by thinking, just by, by closing my eyes, leaning back, and thinking very hard, I can a priori come up with new information. And some of the arguments that we use for the existence of God are a priori. They use the law of inference, and we, based on what we do know, we can infer something, a third thing that is new to us that we didn't really know, and that's that's called a conclusion. If okay. you have to do experiments or you need to look at something, then it's called a, posto- a posteriori, so which means after you've looked at the evidence. Okay. So those, that's the last law of thought. Now, once we've got that, once we know how to think clearly, the rules for thinking, then we can build up different types of logical arguments. So let's take a look at some of the logical arguments. Why don't you hit us with the the first logical argument? 
Well, are you talking about inductive fallacies? I'm talking about inductive arguments. Inductive not arguments. Not the fallacies. So the fallacies would be the mistakes that you make when you're intending to do an inductive argument. Well, my notes here jump from deductive arguments to inductive fallacies. Am I missing okay. something in between? <laughs> nope. You're missing something beforehand. Okay. So an inductive argument then starts with evidence and moves to a generalization, okay, or a conclusion. Okay. So if we want to learn something, we go and look at the evidence and then we move to a conclusion. So we might say, discover a dead body. So we want to look at the evidence. We want to see, try and figure out how the person died. Look and see if there are fingerprints. Look and see if there's a murder weapon. Look and see if there's a motive, if there's opportunity. And then move to a generalization or a conclusion that, hey, this person was killed, person A was killed by person B. That would be an inductive argument. And you can see that those kinds of arguments are the kind that we would typically know as science, right? That's typically what science is based on, is based on inductive arguments. Isn't this called forensic science? Yeah, it's a form of, yeah, the, the example we gave would be forensics. Okay. So, but inductive arguments are used in all types of science. And in fact, in day-to-day -day life, we use inductive argument all the time. Like, I might come into the house and wonder if my wife is home or not. So I might see, hey, the, her car is not here. Okay, and then I go inside, and the place where she keeps her purse, there's no purse there. So based on these two things, the missing car and the missing purse, I can logically assume that my wife's not there. That would be an inductive way of thinking. Without, so actually, think without actually checking the rest of the house, you make that deduction. Exactly. So I'm making so, – and that's just, you know, logically the way we think every day. We, we use inductive – reasoning all the time. Right. Such as if I sat in this chair yesterday and it supported me, if I sit in it again today, it's probably going to support me today, too. Exactly right. That would be a good example of an inductive argument. Okay. Or inductive thinking. Right. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say we're looking at all the verses in the Bible that where Jesus claims, I and the Father are one. Okay. Okay. If we looked at all those, those would be each of them would be pieces of evidence. Then we would come we might come to a conclusion that Jesus claimed to be divine. Okay. Okay. So that would be an inductive argument. We're looking at the particular evidences, the particular times when he made a claim that that sounds like it's a divine claim. Then we can conclude that yes indeed Jesus did claim to be divine. Such as also the verse where he said, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah, exactly. And he, many, many, many others. Right. Now, the interesting thing about inductive arguments is that they can only give you probable conclusions. Okay? Okay. It's not the kind of thing that you can absolutely know for certain. Okay. okay? So, for instance, we gave the example of me coming home and... I don't see the car and I don't see the purse and then yet I can hear a noise and look in the other room. Oh, there's my wife. 
Right. Okay, so I was wrong. I, 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 it was only a probability that she wasn't actually home. Right. She could have and, left the car at the shop to be fixed, and her purse could be in another room. Exactly right. <laughs> Which led you exactly. to the wrong conclusion. Exactly right. Okay. And that's the kind of thing that we have to be aware of with scientific arguments. Because scientific arguments are inductive arguments, they're, they're, they're based on probability. Right. So the more evidence you have, the more probable it is that your conclusion is correct. But right. still, you're in a situation where, the, you know, you have to just be aware that it's a probability and you can't necessarily count on it as fact. Right. It's, everything is susceptible to what they call the, the black swan uh, crisis. And what that's about is that historically, everyone thought, all scientists, because Australia had not yet been colonized, Everyone thought that all swans were white. Just as today we might say that all crows are black. Well, each time you see a swan, isn't that evidence that swans are white? I so would the think more so, swans yeah. you see, the more you can conclude inductively that swan, all swans are white. Right. Until you see a black swan. Until you go to Australia on vacation. That's right. And suddenly and you see a black swan. It's like, oh my gosh, what is that's that? Right. <laughs> that's right. And suddenly your theory has been overturned. Right. So. And that's really the way science is supposed to function. You're supposed that's right. to uh, hold on to conclusions, but with the idea in the back of your head that further evidence may come down the road at some point to show that your conclusion is is wrong. Correct. That's the only way to make progress, really. If you keep clinging to your old, outdated view, science can never take make progress. Right. That would so, be like if I went to Australia and saw a black swan, I would look at it and say, well, that's not a swan because it's black. Yeah, right. It must be a funny-looking crow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about deductive okay. arguments? You want to do that? Sure. This is pretty heavy stuff here. Okay. Uh, my notes here say premises or axioms are combined in a syllogism or argument of a specific form to arrive at a conclusion or new axiom. Right. So any kind of premises and axioms are thoughts or statements or ideas or or claims of fact and then you combine them just as we saw a equals b b equals c therefore so that's two premises and then we're going to combine them to discover something we didn't know a conclusion okay and that's called a, a syllogism or an argument and it and they have to be with they have to have a certain structure to be logical so we're not going to go into what those structures are they're called things like modus tollens and modus ponens this is starting um, to sound like uh, greek here or latin <laughs> yeah exactly yep well you know aristotle um first described all this stuff but if you have the correct argument form and the facts are true then you can arrive at a conclusion so 
if the premises are true, okay, the starting facts, right. and the argument's form is valid, right. then that conclusion must be true. It absolutely must be true. Okay. So deductive arguments are in a completely different category from inductive arguments. Deductive arguments are much more compelling. Okay. One of the nice things is that many of the arguments for the existence of God are deductive in nature. So as long as the premises are true and the argument's form is valid, which it is, then the conclusion is inescapable. It's not like, you know, every swan I've seen is white, therefore all swans are white. No, this is much more stable, more certain than that. And that's why when we say that you can be certain that Christianity is true, that, this is the kind of certainty we're talking about, the certainty of pure logical reasoning. Right. Here's an example we can give similar to that one we did with the A equals B, the law of inference. Right. It's if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then A is greater than C. Gotcha. So that's that's a deductive deductive argument. Right. That cannot fail. It must absolutely be true. Okay. Gotcha. So the only thing that would be false in it is if I got a premises wrong. So let's say that I said if a skyscraper is bigger than a house okay. and a house is bigger than a tennis ball, then obviously a skyscraper is bigger than a tennis ball. But okay. let's say I've gotten one of my premises wrong. Let's say that I said a tennis ball is bigger than a house. Okay? Right. So so now could I could I then infer that a tennis ball is also bigger than a skyscraper? No, you, I couldn't. You could infer it, but you'd be wrong. <laughs> I'd be wrong, and I'd be wrong because... Because your premise is wrong. Correct. There a tennis ball is not bigger than a house. House or a skyscraper. So that's going to mess your conclusion up. Exactly. So you've got to make sure that the fact that you're stating is true, and then your conclusion will be true. Okay. Okay. Got gotcha. you. <laughs> so those are the those are the two types of logical thinking uh, that is done all the time, and people also do the deductive type of thinking all the time too. For instance, if you're walking down a path, let's say you're following somebody, okay, and you get to a fork in the road, okay, and you're following the footsteps. And you go to the left, and you look down, and there are no footsteps anymore. There are no footprints anymore. Right. Right. Okay? Is that an inductive? So you think to yourself, well, the person must have gone the other way. Not necessarily. Right? Yeah. What if, what if your, the left path is a sidewalk? <laughs> then you'd have a reason for realizing why there's no footprints. Right. <laughs> But assuming the scenario is correct, that it's just a path through the woods and you've got footprints, then you have, it's, it would be deductive to assume that the person went the other way. Right. So you go and look and oh, sure enough, there's footprints over there. Now, okay. again, gotcha. the premises might be false, right? Right. It might be that the person didn't, didn't you know, maybe they turned around and went back the other way. Right. So. Or jumped into the woods and went off the path. 
Right. So, but that's an example of deductive reasoning and the kind of thing that we do all the time. Okay. All right, let's jump into the fallacies. Okay. <laughs> this is another one written in Latin here. Yep. <laughs> An unqualified generalization. Well, that's understandable. Right. And an example of that would be exercise is good, therefore everyone should exercise. Okay, that's right. So this is called addicto simpliciter. Right, that's what I couldn't say. <laughs> addicto simpliciter, yep. An unqualified <laughs> generalization. So the example you gave, exercise is good, therefore everyone should exercise. All right, what do you think about that? Well... The one flaw I see in that is exercise is good, but I wouldn't say that everyone should exercise because people with a heart condition probably shouldn't. Exactly right. So exercise is not necessarily good for everyone. That's right. So these, what we mean by fallacies are ways that people go wrong in their thinking. So we're going to list some of the common ways that people go wrong in their thinking. In other words, and an unqualified generalization can be too simplistic and exactly. not be accurate. Yes, that's right. Because it is it's, a generalization. That's right. And it's it's actually good to make generalizations. In fact, we need to generalize. Otherwise, we have a lot of difficulty in coming to conclusions. Right. But we just have to be careful that we don't overgeneralize or make things so simple that they are no longer true. Right. Here's another example. If I, if I say Bible scholars agree that the New Testament was written long after the life of Jesus, okay? okay. Implying, therefore, that it's inaccurate. That's the first okay. thing that I would think if you said that. Right. And this, would, this is an, a fa the fallacy addicto simpliciter. It's an unqualified generalization. The situation is much more complex than what the person is letting on by saying that Bible scholars agree, well, for one thing, it's not that simple. Many schol Bible scholars disagree. Then when the person says that the New Testament was written long after the life of Jesus, well, what do they mean by long? 20 years or 100 years? Or a so thousand years. There's a years. lot to be said about exactly how long after. Right. And then the implication that therefore it's inaccurate, again, that doesn't necessarily follow. So that's a, this one we hear all the time as an unqualified generalization or addicto simpliciter. Bible scholars agree that the New Testament was written long after the life of Jesus. Right. Just not true. But just as an aside, I think more and more of them are, are coming to the conclusion that it actually wasn't written that long after his life. Quite true. Quite true. The more they study it, the the further back they seem to be dating the documents until some of them get within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' lifetime. Correct. Which in historical terms is no time at all. Well, I know there are at least fragments that are in that area, and we know that many of the documents were written then. It's just that we don't necessarily have them, have the papyrus in our hands. Right. So we have... Uh, many from the from the second century, um, but all we have from the first century are just tiny fragments. So we don't want to think people to think that we're saying that the you know whole New Testament we have whole New Testaments from the first century. Right. But even most of it 
I've read that uh, many scholars will date most of it within 50 years or so of Jesus' lifetime. Which, oh, absolutely. Which yeah, some people might was... say, well, that's a long time, but other scholars would say, well, historically speaking, that's nothing. Correct. You're still within the lifetime of people that knew him. Right. Well, let's continue on with the fallacies. This, uh, another this example of uh, addicto simpliciter is that the Bible is full of contradictions, so we can't trust it. Oh, I hear that one all the time. <laughs> right. Again, an unqualified generalization. Right? It, the Bible is full of contradictions, so we can't trust it. Well, these are not really contradictions. These are perhaps paradoxes. Discrepancies is actually really the best way to describe it. Right. It's two different people describing the same thing in different ways. Okay, right. so there might be a difference, but those, that's not a contradiction. A genuine contradiction only occurs when something is both asserted and denied. Right. How about a addicto simpliciter that a Christian might use? How about the Bible clearly states the doctrine of the Trinity? Okay. Okay, that's an unqualified generalization, and it's really oversimplifying a very complex concept. Yes. So the doctrine the, of the Trinity is in the New, Te in the New Testament, but— How would we say that, that it's strongly implied but not clearly stated? Correct. Yeah, that would be much, much uh, closer to the truth. So strongly implied. Basically, this means you don't want to make your argument stronger than it really is. So we don't want to make claims that are unqualified generalizations. We have to qualify. It's like saying that one species doesn't change into another. Well, to be, we have to be clear. We can't be unqualified. We have to say that one kind of animal doesn't change into another kind of animal because of the difference in what the definition of the species is. Okay. All right. Well, we are at the end of the show, so let's do the rest of the fallacies when we come back next week. We'll be, again, Sundays at 4 p.m. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.